Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston, and former two-term U.S. Congressman, Paul Hodes. We're going to start today with a story that we've really been on, both on this panel and in our other podcasts and radio shows in recent weeks, which is, of course, the January 6th Commission hearings, the public hearings into, it's kind of becoming a misnomer. It's it's sort of about the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol aimed at overturning the results of the election. But increasingly, what we're hearing from experts, both in their testimony and in the experts that we're having on our shows, including Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney who came on to the Beyond Politics podcast yesterday with me and Paul, and talked about, she's the NBC News legal analyst, she talked about the fact that January 6th is almost a red herring. It's almost the wrong focus. What really matters from a legal standpoint is everything that preceded it. So let's talk about that a little bit because it really seems like that's where the panel is going in the next couple of weeks. Paul, that was my big takeaway, which is don't focus too much on January 6th itself, focus on the plot to overturn the election. Is that what you heard? Was that the, the main takeaway for you? I think it is. What we're, what we're dealing with, really, uh, before January 6th, and January 6th is only the sort of tip of the iceberg culmination, was the seven-part plot by Trump and his co-conspirators to uh, un- steal the election. Um, it was a multi. It was a multifaceted attempt um, that um, Trump was told was illegal by numerous parties, and and the one of the reasons to connect that to January sixth is not so much for the insurrection, but for the uh, attempt to persuade Pence, uh, cajole, intimidate, and bully Pence into doing illegal and unconstitutional acts, uh, either by uh, refusing to certify or by uh, uh, allegedly or purportedly sending the uh, certifications back to the states to be recertified by phony electors. So putting aside the violence, putting aside the sacking of the Capitol, if you focused on Pence and his role as vice president, purely ceremonial in counting, in opening the envelopes of the certified electors, the Trump pressure campaign was designed to prevent that and intimidate Pence. So that's why January 6th is important. And it's all that other stuff that Trump did that really um, uh, could be the much more important than than the awful violence that day. Right. And w- one of the key things that I heard from Barbara McQuaid yesterday is that there are actually two paths under which Donald Trump could be prosecuted. One is the willful blindness, which is a legal term, the willful blindness, the, the fact that he should have known, any reasonable person should have known that his big lie about the election was just that a big lie. That's one path. Continuing to push the fraud that the election was somehow rigged against him, that is one prosecutable 
offense because it was a fraud. And one thing that the January 6th committee is going to be looking at is the financial part of this. This is something, Paul, you brought up. You used to prosecute white collar crimes when you were an assistant attorney general. And there, there was an attempt to defraud his donors by pushing the big lie and fundraising off of it. So that is a, that's a separate piece of fraud. So that, anyway, that's, that's one pathway here. Pushing the big lie is in itself an offense. But the other pathway that the, that the committee has been building up the case for is buying into a patently and obviously illegal and unconstitutional scheme captured in the Eastman memo, the seven-part plan to try to overturn the election, Paul. That's what you were just referring to. And it seems like there is ample evidence at this point. John Eastman knew it was illegal. He put that in writing. Rudy Giuliani knew it was illegal, put it in writing. I mean, guys, come on. This reminds me of a classmate of mine back in high school who etched his name into his desk. And the teacher comes up to him and is like, dude, it's not that you're defacing the desk that bothers me. It's why do it with your own name? Like, why send an email that says, I am doing a crime right now. Would you like to join me in some criming? That's exactly why Trump wasn't impeached the first time <laughs> over, over his Ukraine call, which was as close as possible as you could get in his call to Zelensky, where he's like, I want you to do me a favor first, though. He's like, I, it, the, the final step that it would have taken would have been to say, I would like to crime with you. Would you crime with me? It's like, you know, one of those checkbox things, you know, when you want to ask a girl, would you like, would you like to dance with me? Yes, no. Would you like to crime with me? So John Eastman puts this into a memo. He's like, I know that this is criming, but I, I want to do it anyway. That's, that's something that you can prosecute. And, and Barbara McQuaid made that very clear. All right, I'm ranting, I'm ranting. Alicia, uh, you know, you and I were talking right before we got on the air. Let's stipulate for a second. I, I don't I don't mean to pass over your reaction, but we have talked before about the fact that you agree that all of this is blatant criminality. You're not you're not disputing any of that. The question, I want to skate where the puck is going. What do we do about this? And you and I were kicking around a couple of ideas. One thing that Barb said on the show yesterday, and I urge people to check this out. It was a really rich inf informational episode. One suggestion that Barb McQuaid had was, well, we should finish developing all this evidence and the attorney general should indict Donald Trump on a Monday and Joe Biden should pardon him on a Tuesday. And you, you kind of like that idea. What, what do you think about that approach? Well, first, let me pass on a piece of advice to Attorney Eastman and others that were part of this nonsense, and that is from the brilliant Judge Marilyn Millian of the People's Court, who <laughs> likes to repeatedly say, say it, forget it, write it, regret it. So, oh yeah, nice. It's a nice. it's a good little you know. Not that I sit home and watch judge shows. <laughs> uh, if they're going to indict him, I think it's a good idea on Joe Biden's behalf, and here's why. Look, I don't know what Donald Trump is or is not guilty of. I'm not a lawyer and I've been watching quite a bit of this and it's all very complex. Um, you know, can he be responsible for the behavior of the violent insurrectionists that stormed the Capitol that day? I don't know if you can be responsible for someone else's violent act. Um, but there, there was some criming going on, at least by Eastman of the world. One of my favorite parts is when another White House attorney said to Eastman, here's the best free piece of legal advice you're ever going to get. And that's get yourself a good criminal attorney. Uh, there were some 
criming going on, as Matt's saying. Look, I, I do not think it's for the good of the country for Donald Trump to be uh, Donald Trump to be convicted um, in any way. And that's not based in law. I don't like I said, I don't know that. I just think it's bad for the country. And I think sometimes there are things more important. Uh, what he attempted to do, or it seems like he attempted to do, didn't work. Democracy prevailed. Uh, Mike Pence did his job. Others did their job. So there was not. Um, a stopping of the peaceful transfer of government. That's an important, important factor here. And I think if they were to indict Donald Trump on something and Joe Biden wants to do what is best for the country would absolutely be to pardon him before things move forward. I think it would be a dangerous time to do otherwise. And I just want to clarify one quick thing about this. And Paul, let me, let me draw once again on your legal prosecutorial experience. You've gone after conspirators after criminal conspirators. If you enter into a conspiracy to commit a crime, that's a crime. So the underlying crime here is impairing the lawful function of the federal government. And the conspiracy is, hey, guys, let's plot to do something fraudulent that we we know is illegal. Let's let's all work on that together as a team. Let's conspire. So, Paul, just clarify for everyone, everyone involved in that effort to conspire both on both on both pathways that Barb laid out, both to advance the big lie to overturn the election and to follow this Eastman scheme to overturn the election. Everyone involved in that, including Donald Trump, is part of a conspiracy and can be indicted, prosecuted, and based on the evidence we have right now, looks pretty darn guilty. Is that right? Yeah. Here, let me break down uh, in plain English how it works. If either expressly, uh, i.e. saying the words, we agree to do this illegal thing, or tacitly, uh, i.e. proved by what they do, a group, uh, more than one person or a group agrees to do something illegal, and one person does something to further the aim of that illegal conspiracy. One person does something that moves the illegality along the path towards the illegal act. There's a conspiracy and they're guilty of conspiracy, whether or not the act is completed. Right. So, so, so let, let me just to, just to just for my own like, see, I, I should have just gone to law school. I should have pulled the trigger on it. All right. So so you, me and Alicia, Paul, Matt and Alicia say, let's rob a bank. Actually, let me let me make it even simpler. Uh, this is a this is maybe a better analogy to, to what happened here. You, Paul, come to me and Alicia and you say, you know what? I think there's a way that we could get all of the money out of a bank and it, it doesn't belong to us. And probably we'd be in trouble if anyone found out about this. But I have a legal theory that we could do this. So what do you think? Let's have a meeting about that. So now it, it seems like what we have here is more than one person talking about doing an illegal act, and one of us is furthering that act without towards something illegal. So we don't have to actually rob the bank. 
Just doing that constitutes conspiracy. So I, 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 before I give Paul an opportunity to respond to that, let me just ping pong back to you, Alicia, because I've got, I've got another idea to run by you. This is political consultant, Alicia Preston. I, I, here's what bothers me about the indict Trump on Monday, pardon him on Tuesday scenario. It's that it requires, we were just talking about conspiracy, right? Mm. It requires working together. One of the worst aspects of the Trump administration was putting pressure on what are supposed to be independent agencies to do the political bidding of the president of the United States to advance his political aims and to benefit him politically. Now, there is a huge difference, huge, huge, huge difference between all the things that Donald Trump did to those ends, including the Zelensky phone call, including the whole Ukraine. I need a favor from you first, though, right? He got he got indicted for that for a reason. There's a whole so there's a whole world of difference between that and saying, hey, Merrick, it's Joe. <laughs> I I if you're going to indict, just give me a heads up because I'm going to pardon the next day. That's the level of coordination we'd be talking about here. Those are not the same thing, but I could see where people would not be comfortable with that level of coordination. So let me throw another idea at you. The idea is if you're not going to conspire behind the scenes, behind closed doors, what if you do it out in the open, out in open air, you convene a meeting and you invite Merrick and you invite Mitch McConnell and you invite Nancy Pelosi, you know, so you invite the, the, the leaders of Congress, you invite your key, the head of law enforcement in the United States, the attorney general, and you invite legal scholars, including Michael Ludig, conservatives, liberals, Lawrence Tribe, perhaps you sit down and you televise it and you have a big discussion. What are the implications of an indictment? What should I do here? And Joe Biden gets opinions out in the open and they coordinate, they conspire, but they do it out in the open. And Merrick Garland goes through his, his decision about whether he's going to indict. And then Joe Biden, based on that, says, well, I'm going to pardon or I'm not going to pardon. But it's all done on the up and up out in front of the American people as a way to pierce the, the inevitable conspiracy theories and you know, the, the, the charges of coordination behind the scenes and political pressure. What do you think about that scenario? Terrible? I don't like it. Terrible, don't terrible like it. idea. I don't like don't it for like a few it. reasons. Uh, one is an American. I don't like it because just like I've got a problem with how the production of this uh, current January 6th committee is taking place, not their existence, not what they're looking into, but the production of it uh, is a dog and pony show. I, I don't like using government to do that. I don't think the White House should be coordinating with cabinet members as to what they're going to do on an indictment. And it, you know, certainly not on something. Let, hey, everybody, let's get together and decide if we should indict a former president of the United States of America. I think it's a terrible idea from that standpoint. So wait, just, so, just so I'm clear, just so I'm clear, you don't think there should be, th there are going to be meetings about this, right? Of course. There, there's going to be discussion about it. Given all of the historic, and I mean historic implications of doing that, you think it's better that there not be conversations about that? Because if there are going to be conversations, I guess what I'm arguing is they're going to happen 
let's have him out in the open. And the conversations, no. Conversations should take place at the Department of Justice. Merrick Garland and his team should make a decision as to whether or not they're going to indict. And of course, because it is of a former president, Joe Biden should be given a heads up one way or another. But he shouldn't be there to weigh in on whether the Department of Justice, which should be independent completely, um, what they're going to do. And if he wants to say to them, all right, do what you got to do. This is what I'm going to do. That's fine. That's not making a decision together. This should be left alone to the Department of Justice. Now, from a strategic standpoint only, it's also a terrible idea because I believe the Democrats sitting there would tell Joe Biden, uh, yeah, we want him indicted. We want him in jail. We want him the, you know, in an orange jumpsuit, and he's not going to get any kind of response that would help him to then justify pardoning him the next day. And, you know, you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to if it's in the public domain. And that's what you'd see. The only pushback I would have to that, well, maybe it's not the only one. I, I might think as <laughs> you I might go have here. more. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to reserve yeah. the right to, to keep objecting to everything you say. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's open-ended. I, you know, I, I think back to a town hall moment that Bill Clinton had with a, a, a questioner. And I don't think this was a prepared exchange. And they were talking about affirmative action. And the, the person, a regular citizen said, well, I'm, I'm against affirmative action. And Bill Clinton said, are you against the system that produced Colin Powell? One of the most prominent, well-respected Republican military leaders at the time. and. It was a it was a very authentic and very real exchange that I think you could see in real time the person's mind kind of at least hitting a pause at least saying I've got to think about that and so look I agree you know politically it's dangerous to pose questions you don't know the answers to but I will say that from a Democrat's standpoint the left is going to be screaming that they want just like you said Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit. That, that pushback is coming. So the opportunity to voice it and to deal with it in a transparent way, to me, that's an opportunity. Could it go south? Sure. But on the other hand, things ain't going great politically for the Democrats right now anyway. Like, hey, hey, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Look, you, okay. you think it could get worse? Wait a second. Wait a second. Of course it can get worse. Um, trust me, it can get worse. I've been there. I know it can get worse. Huh. So, to, you know, but but look, yes, television is always fun. And here we are in the 21st century. So, uh, you know, the revolution will be televised. Uh, the indictment of Donald Trump will be televised. I mean, that's a cute idea. But ultimately, the the Department of Justice is an independent agency that's got its own list of factors and its own decision-making process. And you frankly do not want to intrude or interrupt the DOJ's independence with public television pressure. So it's a cute idea. It makes for good radio, but boy, Matt, that may be the stupidest thing I've ever heard you All say. Right, I'm going to interrupt. We're, we're, I'm going to interrupt your we're, independent we're, thought process on, right now. No, 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 we've got to go. We've got to go. No, no, no. They, the, the, the commercial pressures of, of radio are going to interfere here. Although I am using that as a bit of an excuse to say, you know what? In today's day and age, no one's going to believe that there are independent conversations. People are going to believe that these conversations are happening behind the scenes anyway. So putting them out in the public is a way to pierce those conspiracy theories and do ourselves a little bit of public political service. I get it. Look, OK, I, I was somewhat intemperate in saying that your idea 
of publicly televising the considerations and the negotiations about whether to indict Donald Trump federally by the DOJ was the stupidest thing I ever heard you say. In fact, I generally have such respect for you that it may be the only really stupid thing I've ever heard you say, but there's a way out of the whole dilemma because Georgia is going to do the heavy lifting for us. They've impaneled the grand jury. They're investigating the Raffensperger call. They have Trump on tape saying, steal 11,078 votes. It's as clear a case of, of trying to interfere with the electoral process as there exists. All, the evidence we've got so far is all the circumstantial evidence anybody needs. Um, it's a slam dunk prosecution. There's a grand jury considering it now. The way out for your idea, for Merrick Garland, for Joe Biden and his possible pardon is just wait for Georgia to indict him and put him behind bars. Interesting. I don't think it works like that. I don't think the public is going to see a difference between Georgia does it, the feds do it. And I don't think... I don't think that just saying, well, that's happening on the state level. So let's just hit pause on all of this other evidence that we've uncovered. Let's just ignore it, throw it down the memory hole. I, that's that's not going to work either. Cute, but not not effective. Alicia, you want to weigh in? Then we're going to move on. Just a lot of people thing. say that a lot of people say that about me. Cute, but not really effective. <laughs> I used to get that. I used you, to get that all the time when I was a congressman. Do you re, yeah, you remember you wanted to make that your campaign slogan, and I, I right. mixed it. Yeah, yeah, cute, but not really cute, effective. Not effective. Matt vetoed yeah. that idea. It, you know, it was briefly referenced about how the Democrats are doing, and could it be any worse? And you know, I always advise campaigns and candidates before they think of doing a stunt, which Matt, your idea would definitely be in the category of being a stunt. Uh, you have to ask yourself one very important question followed by a second one. The first important question you ask yourself is, will this get me any votes? Your stunt will not get you any votes. So then you follow up with, will this lose me any votes? Yes, that would lose you some I'm votes. not worried about votes because here's my contention. You and I have talked about this before. We, we may have even talked about it on this show. I don't think the January 6th hearings are changing anybody's mind. No, As a matter of fact, someone smart I know said that to me last week. Oh, it was you. <clears throat> it was you. <laughs> this, if, if Democrats think about these hearings as a way to win votes in the midterms, they're sunk because yep. this is not for politics. The only political implication of this in the near term is the possibility of throwing Sidney Powell and John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani off a dock, setting them adrift into the North Atlantic Sea, where hopefully they'll be consumed by an iceberg or a whale or both. That's politically the idea is let's get these these absolute nutballs who conspired with Donald Trump out of the game and maybe get Donald Trump out of the game, too. That's that's the only political implication. But with that, Talking about being out of the game, we've got to move on here because, uh, you know, I want to just spend a minute, just a minute on this. There's been a whole raft of new reporting. Sometimes reporters get onto a theme and they kind of, you know, that it's there's something real to it. But like they kind of, you know, they see each other. It's like it's like you see your friends in high school wearing a cool new outfit. And it's like, ooh, 
wait a second, I, I should be wearing distressed jeans now or whatever it is. Reporters get onto Jags like this occasionally. Well, the most recent one is a renewed round of belly aching of, from Democrats about, is Joe Biden the right candidate to lead our party in 2024? Paul, I want to let you weigh in on this because you've been inside these rooms as an elected member of Congress where people start to grouse about, we can't have this gal, we can't have that guy. Isn't all of this kind of pointless? I mean, if Joe Biden decides to run, he's going to be the nominee. He's the president of the United States. Is, is there any purpose to any of this? Well, it makes always makes Democrats feel good to whine, complain, and perseverate because that's what Democrats do best. Rather than focus on getting a real message out about what Democrats have done and what Democrats will do, and really talking about inflation and gas prices and showing people that we're doing something, Democrats in the pantheon of, of, of thinkers and intellectuals and rationalization are in closed rooms worrying about Joe Biden. Well, I kind of remember the same kind of worries about a guy named Barack Obama, um, who, whose popularity seemed on the wane after his first term or during his first term. And in fact, even after the punishing midterms of 2010, Barack Obama came back to win the election in 2012. So there are lots of lots of historical antecedents for presidents who don't seem to be doing all that well coming back to win. And by the way, you're right. If Biden decides he wants to run, then he'll run. And all of this nonsense will have been wasted emotional energy. Yeah, I agree. And look, there was a quote in Politico from Jim Clyburn, our recent guest on Beyond Politics, and obviously one of Joe Biden's key supporters and endorsers and the third ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives saying, Joe Biden's my guy. And if it ain't Joe, it's Kamala. End of story. The only way in which this ever becomes significant is if there is a chorus from inside elite Democrat circles. I, I just I just said Democrat circles. I sound like I sound like Elizabeth. I sound like I'm on Fox News. Democratic. It's the Democratic Party people inside elite Democratic Party circles. If people like Jim Clyburn start to jump ship, first of all, they're not going to do it publicly. They're going to convene a meeting. They're going to go to Joe and they're going to say, Joe, it's time. You, you're, you can't cut it anymore. You're done. And we're going to pull our support from you. And it's going to be public and it's going to be ugly. So do it yourself before look, we have to do the, it. The, 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 and that's yeah, not happening here. I that's look, just not the, happening. The only way I think this happens is if the president suffers some serious health crisis and uh, is incapacitated, uh, even briefly, I think then the chorus uh, becomes. Um, you know, it becomes a play um, uh, and and people start really considering whether or not um, he can he can run again. And but but failing that, I don't think we're this is just this is just speculation that feeds the Republican message. Stop yeah, right, it. Right, right, right. Stop it, people. So, Alicia, on the Republican side of things, you are going to be a panelist. For the New Hampshire Republican Senate debate, uh, give us the deets on that, especially for our non-New Hampshire listeners. So, so the 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 race here, just to just to set the table, the race here is against Maggie Hassan, who was a former three-term governor 
of New Hampshire and has been a U.S. senator. She defeated Kelly Ayotte in 2016. And now there is a race on a Republican primary to take her on this fall. Um, and, and you're going to be a panelist as part of the debate. When is the debate? And what are you what are you looking for in this? So the debate will be held Monday uh, at St. Anselm College, the Institute of Politics. It's being organized by Michael Graham, the managing editor of New Hampshire Journal, which is an online publication in New Hampshire. Um, and I will be joining he and Washington Times Capitol Hill reporter Harris Alec uh, as panelists questioning the five U.S. Senate Republican candidates. And what I think is great about this and any primary debate is it's much more nuanced. In general election debates, you know, your Democrat versus Republican, the issues are a lot more obvious. Uh, in primary debates, they're less obvious because the candidates tend to agree with each other 80 to 90 percent of the time. And that's what we see here. So there's that 10 to 20 percent of, you know, where do they differ on the more nuanced issues? And then what I like to see in the conversation I want to see get started is, uh, you know, who can stand up against a very well-funded and relatively popular Maggie Hassan in November? And winnability isn't always a huge factor um, in Republican primary voters, but it is a factor and it is one for me. And I look forward to all five of these candidates answering questions that helps to kind of differentiate themselves from each other. Now, I'm not trying to give any of these campaigns some advanced knowledge of the types of questions they may face, but you have publicly, here's a hint, people, you, this is almost like opposition research. You can do a little bit of media research right now by listening to this show. Alicia is like Babe Ruth. She has pointed her bat out at right field and called her shot right field. You see what I just did there? I, I saw that. Many, Cute. many times. Yeah, nice, right? <laughs> You've, you, you've called your shot many times. You have talked about some bright lines for you, some of which involve Ukraine, mm -hmm. some of which involve the big lie and Donald Trump. And these are not positions that are necessarily shared by all in your party. But you have made very clear that there is there there are there are places that people have gone in the Republican Party that you cannot countenance. Are you looking to expose any of those bright lines? Are you looking to help Republican primary voters who may feel like you do to see where these candidates stand on these bright line issues? You know, I'm not sure. And I say that because to my knowledge, none of the five that I'm aware of um, are extremists that we see you know, in places like who's that former governor that has that shoot all rhinos ads coming out right now. Uh, you know, these guys are all pretty mainstream to my knowledge. Um, I guess I'll be finding out a little more before we come up with questions, but I, you know, th they agree on most things. What I want to know was where they disagree. Ukraine might actually be um, a very pertinent topic because it is something that 75% to 80% of the country agreed on when it started. And now we're starting to see some breakaway on that. So that might be uh, an interesting factor, but you know, my big thing is, are, are you, do you fit the traditional and I say the word traditional principles of the Republican party and where do you differ on them? And as a voter, what I want to know is how we can get a solid traditional Republican in that seat in November. Well, I, can I, just can to follow, I, well, I was going to turn it to you, Paul, because, well, I mean, you, you go ahead, but I, I know yeah. you want to talk a little bit about the contrast with some of what we're seeing around the country and Texas and et cetera. And I, I, I think that the, this is worth probing, but go ahead. 
Yeah, what I when it's interesting, Alicia, to hear you use the term mainstream because it appears from everything that I'm seeing of the Texas Republican platform, uh, what's going on with white evangelicals around the country, uh, what's going on uh, in the Republican Party, that the word mainstream now means right-wing whack job, that you're not a mainstream Republican if you don't believe in the big lie. You're not a mainstream Republican if you don't uh, want to take away women's rights uh, to reproductive choice. You're not a mainstream Republican if you don't believe that every child ages three and up should carry an AR-15. Um, these, are, are, these are now the mainstream views of the Republican Party. So I'm curious about how you, as a Republican who is totally out of step with her party, I mean totally, you might as well be a Democrat for most Republicans. How are you going to manage to keep a straight face during this debate when their mainstream views are all right-wing whack job wacko views. It's wingnut time uh, in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate in New Hampshire. These are okay. wingnuts. I totally disagree both on your last comment and with the overall comment that the wingnuts are mainstream. Look, they make noise. Why do they make noise? Because it's not normal. I say to my newsroom back in the day, the root word of news is new. That's why you see stuff that doesn't happen every day in the news. This this Greitens guy who's running for U.S. Senate in Missouri, uh, he's a Republican. He did an ad. You can find it on Twitter. It's 38 seconds where he literally has people geared up in tactical gear to break down a house door, uh, you know, uh, looking to shoot rhinos, Republicans in name only. That is extremism. This majority leader of the Senate, also a Republican, came out in Missouri and lambasted it, called the police on the guy and said he needs mental health treatment. That's the mainstream. That Senate majority leader in Missouri is the mainstream. These guys get the attention because they are not the norm. I have not seen anything to indicate uh, that any of the um, Republican U.S. Senate candidates here in New Hampshire are of any level of extremism such as that, uh, or that want to abide by a Texas platform that wants to, for reasons I have yet to understand, um, go after gay people as an abnormal lifestyle or whatever ever such divisive nonsense that they put out in a platform. But let's also remember, people that participate in those kind of things, platform meetings, they are the insiders of the insiders who want to spend their weekends hanging out with fellow Republicans writing 28 pages of rules. That is not mainstreamism anywhere in any state. So now I don't think we're going to have any of that with any of the Republican candidates uh, for U.S. Senate here in New Hampshire. I don't find any of them to be extreme, uh, at least to date. I actually two of them I don't know super well. Uh, and I think we've got a good bench out there. Well, I will say that what Paul is talking about is, I mean, it is very real. And, and what I was referring to a moment ago from Texas is the, the Texas Republicans just had their convention. And it was interesting. Dan Crenshaw, who is, I think, well known to many national listeners and viewers, he was involved in that dust up on Saturday Night Live with Pete Davidson a few years ago. He um, lost an eye in the course of military service. Uh, for our country. And Pete Davidson had made a joke about his eye patch. And then he invited Congressman Crenshaw onto the show to apologize to him. And they actually had a very nice moment where they sort of, Pete Davidson acknowledged his mistake and Crenshaw forgave him and then made fun of him back. And it was 
it was sort of a, a, about as positive a, a moment as you can have in today's media culture. And now the exact same set of insults that Davidson got in so much trouble for and apologized for have been adopted by Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson calls Dan Crenshaw Patch McCain. And that, that kind of ridicule for losing his eye serving our country overseas in the military has been taken up by base Republicans at the convention. There are videos coming out from that convention where people are abusing Congressman Crenshaw and his staff for being rhinos. They're calling him Patch McCain. They're saying that Crenshaw needs to be hung. We've heard that recently in reference to the vice president. And one female staffer was pushed into a pillar. Uh, people are, are shoving and hitting these people. And again, it's all of a piece with this idea that if you are not an ultra MAGA pro-Trump Republican on all matters at all times, you are a traitor who literally deserves death. This is a real strain of thought running through the Republican Party right now. And I, I, I tend to agree with you, uh, Alicia, that, I mean, I know Chuck Morse, for example, you know, I, when I when I was a staffer in the state Senate, he was the Republican leader. He's he's not he's not an extreme, not the Chuck Morse. I know he's not really an he's extremist not. like he's a pretty he's a pretty low key. I look, I, I don't think much of his political philosophy, but he's OK. He's he's like he's like an okay he's a good guy. guy. I've 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 you know had pleasantries with him. Like I don't I don't think he's out to go rhino hunting. But my point is, a lot of the people who are looking to make a choice in the Republican primary are people who do share these views and are looking for someone like that in their nominee. And so I, my public service request to you is, I do think it would be a public service to expose which of these potential nominees want to play footsie with that element of the Republican party. That's my, that's my two cents. So noted. So noted. Yeah. You're, you're, you're thinking like, yeah, I'll take tips on from you on how to be a panelist in a Republican Senate <laughs> primary debate. Sometimes Which I ask, I don't know. Let me call my Democrat friend and find yeah, out. Yeah. Go <laughs> ahead, Matt. Give me more <laughs> tips. Great. All right. Look, before we go, we had meant to talk last week about a show that Paul and I did with the noted economist, Mark Zandi. It was really interesting. It's in the Beyond Politics podcast feed from last week. And we talked about the threat of a recession. Uh, Mark Zandi does not think it's as high as it was back in 2008, but it, it is there. And we, we broke that down. We also talked about inflation. By the way, that's once again, Paul doing the show from outside. If you're hearing what sounds like tweeting, Paul's doing an old fashioned kind of tweeting right now. Um, and we also talked about the threat lovely, of actually. inflation. It is very nice. It's, yeah. it's like, well, as I talk about the possibility of the economy melting down, it's like, oh, the birds are nice, though. Oh. Yeah, they were, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we might have to shoot them to eat them pretty soon if meat prices keep rising. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, we might have to tighten our belts or eat it, you know, one or the other. Whatever. Let's, yeah. let's go I'm hunt the Blue Jays. I'm you know, sitting on. Yeah. Oh, God. Alicia, listen, I, this, is, this, this is my point, though. This is my point, is that Republicans do seem we are facing a little bit of economic turbulence right now. And Republicans do seem to be having a little bit of schadenfreude about this, a little bit of like, oh, are we going to have to hunt our backyard birds to survive? Details at 11. I mean, 
first of all, as I'm at pains to say all the time, it is a mixed economic situation right now. Jobs and unemployment and job opportunities and, and wages are all very, very positive. Inflation is bad. The reason we're facing the threat of recession is because the Fed is raising interest rates, which I mean, they're, they're trying to cool down the economy. That's what's creating the risk of recession. And so it, it, let's, not, let's not overstate this here, although I guess Bert, Blue Jays are, are delicious. But, you know, Paul, are there constructive ideas that you've heard, actual constructive bipartisan ideas that would help on the economy that would be, that would be positive steps that the president or GASP Congress could take right now? You know, uh, the, the Federal Reserve has to uh, walk a very fine line um, between raising interest rates, which they've recently, and they've recently announced uh, the biggest increase in interest rates since I can't remember when, three quarters of a point. Home mortgage rates are up, hovering uh, close to uh, close uh, to six. Um, uh, you know, so so that's going to cool the housing market in a big way. It doesn't approach the 18% uh, that uh, I faced when I bought my first house um, uh, a while ago. In the near term, I think that uh, it may help to release some strategic petroleum reserves. In the long term, this country has to move away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, and we really need to be thinking long term about how to refocus our economy um, uh, towards producing things at home, uh, to uh, ensuring our domestic supply chains can support our tech industry, et cetera. Um, in the near term, I think we have to ride out some turbulence. I, I think that's right. And, you know, look, Alicia, any, any thoughts like a 30 seconds because we're, we're about to wind up here? You know, I, I just think that when we're talking about inflation and, you know, I keep being told to buy a Tesla or to change from fossil fuels, that's all great. And at the end of the day, though, we are dependent on fossil fuels and any change in that, which should happen, I, I, I'm not opposed to that changing, is way, way, way off. And it doesn't help curb anything that we're going through right now. And but you know what? Here's my free advice to Democrats. Keep telling me to buy a Tesla. Keep telling me to get a windmill. And I'll see you the day after the election in November. I, I personally <laughs> would love to get a windmill powered Tesla. That sounds delightful. <laughs> you know, look, I, Alicia, I kind of agree. And so does Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, who said, you know, we should we should be all of the aboveing it now on energy, long-term transition to green renewable energy and with that thought we have got to wrap up for paul and alicia i'm matt robeson we'll see you next time